Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest today is Josh Miller, who is the Chief Program Officer of the Jim Joseph Foundation. In this role, Josh is responsible for the planning and development of the Foundation's grant-making strategies to ensure achievement of its mission and goals. Josh also manages a portfolio of special projects and major grants that have strategic implications for the Foundation. His current areas of focus include building effective multi-funder collaborations, cross-portfolio evaluation and research, organizational capacity building, and new approaches to investing in educational technology and digital engagement. Prior to transitioning into the fields of philanthropy in 2008, Josh spent 15 years as an experiential educator, community builder, and social entrepreneur in a range of settings. I've asked Josh on the program today, as the Jim Joseph Foundation has become a household name in the Jewish community, granting millions of dollars in a variety of areas. I'm excited to hear from Josh more about the philosophy behind the foundation's giving and how he views the future of the community, given his unique vantage point. Welcome to the program, Josh. Thank you for having me. So we'll go ahead and begin just with how you got into this position. I mentioned you were in a variety of settings before coming to Jim Joseph. and I'd love to hear more about it. Sure. So yeah, my story, I don't think it's so unusual as a Jewish professional path. I grew up here in the Bay Area, you know, a little bit involved and my family was, you know, members of synagogue, Sunday school and Hebrew school and all of that. And hit a moment, I would say, kind of midway through high school after going on a inspiring, you know, teen Jewish travel experience in Israel where I felt inspired to get more involved, particularly just because the setting there made me feel like I could be myself in a way that I didn't feel I had in other parts of my life. And that's when I got more involved in camp and in youth group. And that sort of spun into greater involvement as a Jewish student on campus during my college years. And it's interesting, when I graduated, I was looking to start a career in you know, the Silicon Valley technology world because I'd studied computer science. But an opportunity kind of came before me to spend a year working for Hillel as a Jewish Campus Service Corps fellow, which was an outreach job working in the Jewish world on campus called the Engagement at the time. That job for me was really enticing because it was an opportunity to do the kinds of things I had done as a student and before that, but to get paid for it which was pretty amazing. Always nice. You know, I kind of didn't look back from there and continued doing my work in the Jewish community. I stayed in Hill for a number of years and hit kind of another turning point when I thought it was time for me to go to graduate school. And after, you know, being a Hill professional and a song leader at camp and kind of enjoying that kind of Jewish leadership, when I started talking to mentors, I imagined they would send me on a path to go be a rabbi and kind of fall in the footsteps of so many of the folks who I'd met before. And what I heard at that time, kind of at a moment of professionalization in the Jewish communal sector, folks were actually saying, you know, the skill set of being a manager and knowing how to budget, knowing how to plan, you know, are some tools that you could really use in your toolkit if you want to advance and help the community. So a bit to my surprise, a year later, I found myself in business school as this, you know, West Coast ponytail, you know, tie-dye <laughs> shirt-wearing Jewish communal professional, you know, signing up for these formal business classes. But ultimately, it was a great experience for me, and I learned kind of a different way of thinking and uh, language that I think, you know, has really served me well and allowed me to kind of bring a different perspective to the work that I'm glad I'm able to bring. And I left business school and tried my luck as kind of a Jewish social entrepreneur and built out an organization that did community-wide, you know, young adult engagement work and got to both do the programming and also the fundraising, which was challenging, but interesting. And I was able How old to, were you at that point? I guess I was in my late 20s and early yeah. 30s, kind of combining what I had learned from my work in Hillel, what I had learned from being a 20-something myself, right. and then, you know, the MBA skill set. And transitioned out of that when my wife and I decided to go spend a year living in Argentina, actually, which was amazing. Yeah. I had probably the best job in the world. She was a Fulbright fellow and I was a Fulbright spouse. 
No, so, there you go. A lot of the perks, but none of the responsibilities. And I traveled a lot. I did a little consulting work for a great organization actually called the Professional Leaders Project that was investing in kind of young talent and leadership at the time. And when we moved back, we came back to the Bay Area and I was trying to figure out what the next step in my career would be. And I felt that while I had loved the front lines work that I had done in Hillel and working in the young adult community and in camp, I felt that at this stage in my life, I wanted to be the guy who was helping other people to do that work. And I was looking at potentially, you know, consulting roles and some of these organizations that support nonprofits in the sector. And once again, was, you know, looking both inside and outside the Jewish community, but came in actually for an informational interview here at the Jim Joseph Foundation, just to learn more from a colleague who I had met. And it was just kind of perfect timing that the foundation was looking for really its first program officer. And they needed somebody who kind of had a national perspective, but also, you know, understood the world of camp, the world of youth group, the world of campus life, you know, young adult engagement, you know, birthright Israel, this whole space, which I had worked inside. So I think that combined with, you know, the MBA skill set led to, you know, just being a perfect fit at the perfect time. And that was just over 10 years ago. And I've been here ever since. That's awesome. And obviously made your way up to your current position. And how old is the foundation? Do you know? So the foundation was founded in 2005. So when I came on, it was still very much in some ways, you know, a startup in that sense that we were still putting systems in place and still, you know, learning how to do our business. And I've had just an incredible privilege of watching us evolve and grow over that journey to where we're at now at, you know, almost 12, 13 years into the work. So what would you say are some of the biggest changes that the foundation has undergone? It's really interesting. You know, when we first started, and I really want to credit my former boss, Chip Edelsberg, who was the founding executive director, the realization was, we were going to be committed to funding Jewish education and the smartest people about how to do that were folks who've been doing the work for many years. So mm-hmm. out of the gate, we've tried to find you know the best partners who had the best reputations who we could partner with to learn from, to invest in, and to kind of grow with. And over time, as we're putting systems in place, we've really been able to come up to speed on the work. In that time, our staff has grown, our systems have evolved, and we've been able to identify what works in the arenas that we've been funding and where are the gaps that needed additional attention that we could maybe be more proactive about. And I would say midway through my tenure, we started investing more in you know, building collaborations and thinking about evaluation and research that needed to happen putting resources directed towards areas that were being underinvested in. And, you know, that's brought us up to today where we've really taken a big step back, actually, to look back at what we've learned and figure out what our path forward should be. That's awesome. So why don't you kind of give us a picture of the current day work of the foundation and some of the current focuses that are going on? I mean, the thing to say about us and how we kind of think about our work begins really with Jim Joseph himself, who was an immigrant to this country. He came over right before World War II and settled in and, you know, built a really amazing business. He was in the real estate world. And when he died in shortly before this foundation was founded and left close to a billion dollars of assets specifically towards funding Jewish education, which is what he was most passionate about. And the legacy of the foundation is both, you know, investing in that which he really cared about, but also embracing the way in which he worked, which was incredibly strategic and thoughtful and always with an eye towards excellence and bringing together the right partners. And that kind of got built into the DNA of who this foundation is. So in terms of Jewish education, you know, we're focused on learning experiences for young Jews and their families and their friends. And we define, you know, learning and education quite broadly, knowing that, you know, learning certainly happens in classroom settings. It also happens in experiential settings, you know, like camps and travel experiences. And it also happens in conversation and with mentors and parents. And it happens offline in interactions we have and online and conversations and listening to podcasts and, you know, other kinds of interactive engagement. And we're trying to continually explore the different ways in which people learn about Judaism and how to be Jewish and investing in ways that are going to work for them. You know, the other important piece to discuss is how we do our work and how we embrace kind of the strategic thinking that is our legacy. And that, again, really to credit my former executive director of the foundation, who from day one thought about how do we embrace kind of an effective grant-making philosophy in everything that we do, recognizing that a lot has been learned about how do you invest in nonprofit organizations in ways that will maximize the likelihood that they achieve the outcomes that they and you are hoping they will achieve. 
And some of the basic tenets of that include longer-term, multi-year investments, bigger investments than typically you might see, unrestricted support whenever possible. That's definitely a unique thing. It's hard yeah. to come by. It, unrestricted it, and operational. That's it a... is, and it turns out, you know, which will be no surprise to anyone who works in the sector, those are the dollars that enable you to fulfill the vision that you want to bring into the world. And our challenge mm-hmm. is to find the right partners whose mission aligns with ours enough that we can say, here's the resources to do what you have the vision to do. And sometimes those organizations also need help to build their capacity to think like that, to build their capacity to strengthen their organizations. And we'll invest there too and bring in outside help from you know consultants and others who we've gotten to know to help enhance their thinking around that. And similarly, you know, another important practice is just investing in evaluation and in research so that organizations mm-hmm. can continually be smarter about the work that they do and so that they can continue to make the case to others that what they do actually matters. And I'd just say the last piece about the how we work has been just a deep focus on the relationships that we build. You know, there's a transactional form of philanthropy where the funders ask for a written proposal, make a determination, and then, you know, you get in touch again when there's a written report due. And our philosophy is kind of the opposite of that, but to really get into relationship with the people who are leading the work so that we can learn, so that we can bring the expertise that we're developing from talking to other grantees who are doing related work so that we can all just sort of get smarter together and build a trust relationship. And that applies both to our grantee partners, but also to the other foundations and funders that we collaborate with, because there's so much kind of siloing in the Jewish communal sector. And we have an opportunity, I think, to bridge some of that. And I think it makes a difference. Well, that seems like it's part of your portfolio as far as, you know, bringing together these sort of cross organizational projects and funding and efforts to amplify the impact of that. That's absolutely true. And it's work that I find compelling. And in many ways, I've realized that it's not dissimilar to the work that I did when I was, you know, helping encourage student leadership on campus or helping young adults plan what they wanted to do, you know, with themselves and their peers was, you know, helping them find one another and build connections and network and think about how do we do more for the whole community. And that, you know, in the organizational realm is about systemic change and, you know, working with big national organizations that are able to have broad reaching effect and force multiplier effects across a whole system. So have there been any trends that you've seen kind of change or shift in the funding proposals that you've received across your desk? I'm sure you've seen thousands in your time at the foundation. What are the trends that have been there? Whether it's been, you know, very similar ideas or a continuing need or always something new and interesting. It's a really interesting question. And I think I would kind of divide it up into two categories. One is in terms of the trends of the ways in which we're understanding Jewish education and Jewish learning and the ways in which our grantees are understanding Jewish education and Jewish learning. And then the second piece is kind of the how, sort of what it is that they're asking for the foundation to support or ways in which we're doing things perhaps differently. And on the first piece, it certainly has been an arc of a journey, I think, for me and for us. When I think about what Jewish education meant to me when I first started working in the Jewish community, it was, you know, more of a traditional understanding of, oh, that's what you get when you go to Jewish school or a formal learning setting. And I think over time for me and also for the foundation, we've come to understand that learning happens in so many different settings and camps and travel experiences happen in people's homes. They happen over Shabbat dinner. They happen over coffee conversations. It can happen even, you know, listening to a podcast. And with that has come an evolving definition of who even are the educators in Jewish life. And I think we've always understood that, you know, there are professionals who play educational roles, whether those be teachers or youth group advisors or camp counselors, what have you. But increasingly, we've come to understand that, you know, peers can be educators and parents can be educators and grandparents and your online chavruta partner. Do you have parents and grandparents applying for granting from your foundation? It's funny that you asked that no. But we have grantees telling us we would like to have resources so that we can train, you know, young people to reach out to their peers on campus or in a young adult Mm -hmm. setting. Or we want to put resources in the hands of parents so that they can provide a kind of Jewish education in the home that perhaps, you know, Jewish parents already knew how to do. And today we have a whole generation of grandparents who are really passionate about bringing Jewish experiences for their grandchildren. And it's a big opportunity. That's Certainly something that we are learning, I think, from our grantees. I would also add in that vein that we're also learning who is the potential audience 
for Jewish learning. Mm-hmm. And there was a time when, you know, we had like this perception that it was mostly us people who live in the big city and we're mostly white and straight and people generally with resources. And we're learning now that the Jewish community from our demographic studies and our grantees are just seeing this is much more diverse, right? And there are people of color who are Jewish, you know, 10%, maybe 20%. We've got LGBTQ Jews. We have people with disabilities. We have people who don't just live inside the big cities. And we have a big opportunity to think about how Jewish learning is provided so that those audiences feel like Jewish learning settings are a place that they can come to explore the wholeness of who they are, not just the Jewish side of who they are, but how that integrates with every bit of their of their personhood. And with that, I would also say we have an understanding now, and we're hearing this again from our grantees, that more and more, it's not just the Jewish person, but it's the Jewish person and the people in their inner circle. So maybe it's the Jew and their friends, and some of them are Jewish and some of them are not. Maybe we want to include their parents, and some of them are Jewish and some of them are not. Or, you know, that roommate or whoever it is that is in their circle, and that, you know, if Jewish learning experiences are about providing, you know, access to connection and purpose and meaning and all of that, if done right, it can be just as relevant for someone who maybe grew up Jewish as for someone in their inner circle who did not. And I would say increasingly, we're hearing from our grantees that we need to be thinking about our audience in that way. And we're seeing more proposals that are embracing of this broader definition of who we might be able to reach. It definitely is a shifting world out there as far as the way people do anything. So in thinking about Jewish education, it's no wonder that that's the way people are trying to think about it when the things they've been trying to do before don't necessarily work out as well as they once did. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we're discovering that those who are opting in to Jewish learning experiences and the legacy institutions we know well don't tend to be as diverse as we know the Jewish community to be. And there's a big opportunity, I think, for those organizations to evolve. And some of them are asking us for our help in doing that. And then there are, you know, emergent new kinds of communities and organizations that are expert in that work. And there's a big opportunity, I think, to fund them as well. And the other thing I would say on this question around trends, I would say that when we first got into this business as a funder, we were supporting what I would call kind of buy investments, where a program would be presented to us and we'd be asked to pay for a certain number of scholarships or subsidies or annual program costs of something. And that was a great way, I think, to get into this work and to start growing our portfolio. And over time, What we have learned is that if we want to be kind of a large-scale systemic funder, the big opportunity is actually what I would call build investments, opportunities to invest in an organization that is kind of fully mission aligned with the Jim Joseph Foundation to build out their capacity to do the work that they do. And a build investment, rather than paying for a specific program or a specific subsidy budget line, would be about how are we going to fund your planning so that you can grow? How are we going to then invest in that plan to build out your capacity to fundraise or your capacity to build that data system or open that new office in a new location? And those kinds of investments enable us to really magnify, amplify the work of an organization that is already mission aligned with the foundation. And I think as we and our grantees have become more sophisticated, we've seen more requests of that nature. Mm -hmm. And I think it's been enabling us to just have greater impact through our funding when we have that kind of alignment and we can make those kinds of investments in our organizations we work with. Right. And that's definitely something that I've observed from as an outsider of your foundation. I think it's always so hard to say we want to look for grant funding, but you have to create a program or somehow mold your program because, you know, operational funding isn't so sexy or doesn't really get funded. And so you try to think about the model that you've created and saying, it's not just that one-off thing. It's not just that one-off idea. We want to invest in you as an institution, I think is a wonderful way to look at funding and encouraging and growth. And I think that your foundation does a really good job of that long-term investment that really makes a difference with your funders. I mean, I think I've observed that too. And I would say it's been an evolution for us in learning how to do that and building the kinds of relationships between the foundation and nonprofit organizations we support where there's that mutual trust there that we want to get in and invest and that they're ready to take that kind of investment and, you know, step out and take risks together with like a multi-year investment that's going to, you know, do something they've never done before in order to maximize, you know, the outcomes of their work. 
So are there any particular areas that you funding that maybe took off or were really successful or had a lot of growth that you didn't really expect, especially considering, you know, some of these new, interesting, innovative ideas that might be coming across your desk? What's kind of been an unexpected success in the last couple of years? When I think about, you know, the surprise successes, the sort of standout projects that we kind of come back to and say, this is something we're especially proud of. And how did that happen that it did so well? I would just say that it always ties back to leadership, whether that's an individual leader or a leadership team that has, you know, demonstrated an ability to take their great idea and soar with it and grow it and build it. And I would say when I first got into this work, I thought it would all be about, you know, who's got the best idea, who's got the killer app, how do we find those ideas, and and then just, you know, put resources behind them. But increasingly, there are so many good ideas out there. And it's not just the idea, it's the idea, and then the confluence of leadership that knows how to make that happen, because it's the leaders who attract the great educators to work with them and the great board members who want to partner with them and the committed funders who want to invest in them. They kind of create this virtuous cycle of success that can then kind of grow and evolve and launch new projects. Just the thing I'd say that's been surprising for me is I think I had a stereotype of what a great Jewish leader might look like. Mm. And I've just come to appreciate how many different forms it can take, right? It's not always the most seasoned person. It's not always the person who grew up in the cradle of all the Jewish youth experiences and teen and college and high school experience and post-college experiences that make that happen. Sometimes it absolutely is, but you know, sometimes it's people who have a bit of an outsider perspective and are able to bring that. But what they do have is just the ability to take an idea and make it a reality. Yeah, that's something I've explored with some of the other guests who do leadership type programs that are exclusive. And so, you know, you have somebody who did this fellowship and was in this thing and you tend to create a class, a professional, right? That's the insider that's done all these programs and knows all these people and then therefore gets the jobs or gets the career development and kind of what we're doing in creating these exclusive opportunities for people. So it's lovely to hear that Not to say that those people aren't deserving of their positions or very skilled, but that there's more to a great leader than the insider training and connections that you can get through our institutional training programs. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that when I think about the leaders who have stepped out and really made an impression, there are absolutely some people who are graduates of some of these great programs. And in other cases, people step out and demonstrate that maybe we haven't heard of them, but they can lead. And then we get them into some of these great programs so they can continue to grow and learn. And I think there's a place for that as well. So you talked a little bit about thinking about these leaders and looking at them kind of a little bit holistically and how they might launch a project. So it's a little objective, right? The qualities of a leader that's going to make a project successful. So how do you kind of evaluate that? How do you look at a project or a community and know that that person is going to be successful in what they're trying to do? Yeah, well, the first thing I'll say is that you don't know and the unexpected is part of the work. But what I will say, you know, to mitigate against that is increasingly I've noticed us getting to know an organization through making an initial investment. Maybe there's a specific project that's a little bit smaller that the foundation can invest in just to get to know that organization. Right. And oftentimes as part of initial due diligence, you know, we'll want to talk to that leader. We'll also want to talk to other funders, maybe who supported that project, if there are some. We'll want to talk to other people who work in the organization they lead. We'll want to talk to beneficiaries to get kind of a 360-degree perspective of the organization and its leadership. And then, you know, we'll make a grant and through that work, really build a relationship with the people in charge and get to know them and get to know the organization in a deeper kind of way. And, you know, through that process, you know, becomes clear whether or not there's greater alignment for further partnership. And I know some funders will make, you know, a one-time investment and say, that was fun. It was accomplished a lot. And now we're done. Our preference would be if it's going well, and we've seen great things that, you know, how can we put more resources in to get, you know, more great, you know, opportunity out of this investment. The other thing I would just add, you know, I think I used to think that, You can spot a good leader by their 
charisma, by their ability to give a great speech and, you know, tell a good story, or maybe their, you know, great deep wisdom about the Jewish community. And what I've just come to appreciate in this work is that those are important components of being a good leader, but even more so the people who really can take a project and make it sing also have a whole behind the scenes skill set around how do you build and run an organization? How do you set realistic goals? Right. How do you manage? How do you surround yourself with you know people who can complement your skills? And then how do you delegate to those people so that the work can get done by a team and that those people are you know really reflective and self-aware and able to listen and able to manage change in a changing world. And those are all skills that are part of the package that makes the folks who really succeed, I think, shine and just get the work done when it's bigger than themselves. Right. And it's probably pretty obvious when a leader can't get there, right? When you kind of come across a lot of problems in the conversations or in, you know, what they're trying to deliver. Maybe there's a lot of excuses. I feel like when something isn't working or isn't successful, that too is just as obvious that you're like, great, we're trying and (laughs) best of luck to you. I absolutely appreciate that. And I've also come to appreciate that there's a certain set of skills required to take an organization through a certain moment in its life cycle. And the person who was the absolute right person to launch that organization may just have in their kishkis the ability to just build and grow something. And some of the savviest leaders like that know that it hits a certain point and it's time for them to step aside and bring in that person who's ready to take it to the next level. And there's another set of leaders who might be especially good at that phase of the work. Or maybe there's a leader who is really good at, you know, helping an organization that's really reached its mature phase to wake up again and figure out what's next. So sometimes it's not just about the right set of skills for that organization, but it's about the right set of skills for that organization in that moment. And part of what we learn, I think, in our own journeys is, you know, what kind of a leader are we? You know, what kind of moment are we best at leading from? Mm-hmm. And you know, you can have an amazing career as a startup CEO and just get really good at that. And the world needs that. Yeah. I mean, we talked a little bit about this when I was talking about job descriptions with a guest and, you know, maybe putting that in your job description, right? Being honest with where your organization is at and how that person you're trying to bring in connects with that and where, you know, are you struggling? Are you startup? Are you peaking? Like being realistic and understanding that about your organization as to where you are in the organization lifeline scale will help a person decide, you know, oh, am I ready for a startup type environment? Or am I really looking for something more legacy? And not even just legacy, but a little more stable, a little more established? Or am I looking to come into something dying and really put in some life and some change and take on that challenge. And unless you can be transparent with people about where you are, it might be hard to find the right person for what you're trying to get them to do. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And I think it's, you know, being a good leader is knowing what you need to do at this moment in your career to bring your best self forward. Maybe early in my career, I do want to be on the startup scene because I've got that kind of energy and I've that kind of flexibility in my life. But, you know, at a different stage, you know, I'm interested in a different kind of role because of where I'm at in my life. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Before turning to my conversation with Josh, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode. Mimi Kravitz is Hillel International's inaugural chief talent officer, who discusses with me the unique focus Hillel places on the happiness and development of their staff at every level, and what the impact of that focus is on the individual and the institution. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation. One piece of advice that I would have for all people at work who are engaging in supervisor-supervisee relationships in any form is to invest in the relationship, to really think uniquely about each relationship and its importance and make sure that that relationship is critical and central to the work you're doing outside of your direct goals in terms of impact. For managers, that is because spending time on supervision and investing in the people who work for you is the very best way to make sure that you achieve your outcomes. But it's also true for people who are being supervised. I think that sometimes people who are being supervised get in the trap of thinking about their needs and forget to think about their manager and that own person and their situation and their needs. And one of the most important things in performing at work is not only understanding your individual goals and growth trajectory, but how that lines up with what your supervisor or your manager is trying to accomplish and how you can do your work best to help them accomplish what they need to in their own work. 
Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Mimi in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Josh. Wonderful. So kind of on the flip side of what I asked previously with the kind of trends that you saw in the proposals, are there things that are coming across your desk? You're just like, oh no, like this again, or I keep getting these same ideas and I just know it's just not going to work. And, you know, I wish people would stop trying to think about it. And I'll give a quick example of my organization. God bless them. They keep coming out. It's me. we should do a podcast. And all our staff just keep kind of shaking our head, being like, we really shouldn't, <laughs> you know? And so it's, I can only imagine that there are things that come across your desk that you're kind of shake your head at and you're like, mm, like, this is not the right direction. Yeah, I totally appreciate the question. I was thinking about what are the things that we say no to over and over again and realizing that one of the hardest parts of this work, and I know that, you know, my other colleagues in the funding world feel this way too, is that there's actually a ton of great ideas out there. And usually by the time they get to us, a lot of thought has gone into them and we find ourselves saying no mostly to ideas that we do think have a lot of potential. And the reality is that it's not just about it being a great idea, but it's about being a really good fit for whoever the funder is that's considering the opportunity. And in our case, we're a systemic change funder. We operate on a larger scale. We fund nationally. We're trying to be as strategic as possible. And in order to do that, I have just great admiration for our board in insisting that we stay focused on those kinds of larger scale initiatives that are going to have system-wide impact. And in order to do that, we tend to fund larger organizations, what we call intermediary organizations, say like the Hill International Center that works with all the Hillels or the Foundation for Jewish Camp, which works with all the camps or Prisma, which you know works with all the day schools in the day school space knowing that through investing in projects like that, our resources are going to have changed across the system. Right. But what that means for us is that that individual camp, that individual school, that individual campus CLL isn't a direct candidate for funding. And it's often those kinds of projects, you know, a smaller project, a community-based project that ends up being out of our wheelhouse, even though the innovation that they have or the opportunity they have or the uniqueness of that organization could be really interesting and aligned for us. And I would say we continue to struggle to figure out how through our grantees can we make sure that our dollars are flowing to those kinds of projects, recognizing that we with a small staff just can't be in a position to consider all the interesting opportunities that are out there kind of across our sector. So you're telling me that every organization is trying to start a podcast? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they may be and we may not know about right. it or they, or they may be and we only hear about it when our partners tell us it's kind of bubbling up through the ranks. And the good news is that, you know, in the Jewish funding sector, there are other funders who do have that kind of confidence to work with the first out of the box ideas and, you know, the newer entrepreneurs. And we continue to listen carefully to what they're doing and mm-hmm. hearing who's graduating from those cohort-based programs right. because many times they're ready for our funding at the next phase. Well, it's definitely good to know, I mean, to keep your eye on what it is that you're trying to do. And I think it's probably would be easy to be sidetracked by, you know, all those wonderful little great ideas that you think would be so wonderful, but really knowing what your, you know, your foundation's mission is as far as the way that you operate and the way that you want to fund in these collaborative, long-term kind of high impact way. That's fantastic. That's absolutely it. And again, it's sort of knowing what you're good at and what you're not good at, I think has been helpful for us because, you know, periodically we've funded the startup or we funded something that needed a different kind of funder support than this foundation could provide. You know, helpful learning lesson for us too, that, you know, success is tied to not just the grant making support, but also the non-grant making support we can provide. And our grantees need both. So what are some of the biggest things that you've noticed during your time at the foundation? Three things that I think we've observed that we are really thinking of a lot right now at the Jim Joseph Foundation. The first I would say is, you know, the mindset that I think we even embraced and I certainly embraced in my early years working in the sector was how do we, through our work in Jewish education, help young people learn about being Jewish? And how do we, you know, get Judaism out there into the world? Because, you know, we care about continuity. We care about the Jewish future. We care about its survival. And that message, I think, resonated for a long time. But as I think other guests on the show have noted, for a younger generation today, the why of being Jewish is not just about Judaism for its own sake, but the why of being Jewish has been shifting to that we live in this complicated, changing world 
And despite that, like there are certain needs that are and aspirations, I would say, that are persistent for people. And that is, you know, a desire for connection, a search for meaning, a search for purpose. And the reframe that we've been talking about and thinking about internally here is about how do we channel Jewish learning as an opportunity for people to cultivate that sense of connection, meaning, and purpose in their lives. And what that's really led us to that's been, I think, helpful and enlightening, and and I think we've learned a lot of this too from our grantee partners, is that, you know, there are certain moments in our lives, not just our Jewish lives, but our lives writ large, where we are particularly, you know, yearning for, aspiring for help to either figure out, oh my gosh, I've just moved to a new community after graduating from college and I'm looking for people to meet and I'm looking for what my life is going to look like as an adult or, you know, oh my gosh, I just became a parent and I've got this child and I'm, you know, re-envisioning who I am as a person and how to be the parent that I want to be. So there's these kind of life stage moments, which we're calling the kind of inflection points in people's lives. But it's not just that, it's also life cycle moments, like, you know, I'm getting married or reaching that kind of rite of passage as a 12 or 13 year old or as a parent around potentially bar bat mitzvah. And then there's also these moments maybe that aren't triggered by, by a moment in their aging but rather something happens in the world, whether it's a political event or a disaster or just a new yearning that I have for meeting my spiritual needs in a different kind of way or a quest for meaning or a quest for wellness. And, you know, the reframe is Jewish learning is an opportunity to address those aspirations for people at those moments in their lives. And I think we have seen among the nonprofits we work with when they're oriented towards meeting people where they're at in those moments, they can't provide the programming fast enough. And other organizations maybe that are just still trying to find people, you know, because they're out there in the community or because they think you should join my institution have trouble with recruiting. Recently, we've been talking a lot about how do we support those who are oriented towards, you know, providing Jewish learning in a way that's going to enable folks to have that growth at the moment when they're most seeking it. So I would say a second thing that we're seeing and observing is that, you know, the biggest lever for us when we make investments in organizations and programs is the actual people who drive those experiences. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, for many years here, the real emphasis was on the educators who have such a critical role to play. And any curriculum or any program is only as good as the people who are implementing that work and able to connect with the individuals who you know, decide to participate. And our investment in those individuals is an investment not only in that person as a person, but also in all of their current students or the learners they work with and all of the future students and learners they might work with over time. And then I would say what we've even more noticed in recent years is that those educators are only as successful as the organizations who employ and deploy them. And that is about the leadership that mm-hmm. makes it possible for them to do their work. And that when we invest in a leader, we're helping you know strengthen those organizations and strengthen the work of those educators kind of now and into the future. And certainly the Jewish community has woken up to this as an issue over the last many years. And you know I'm proud that our foundation has been part of that conversation and is eager to be part of that solution and thinking about how does a major investment in talent of you know our sector enable us to just achieve all of the goals and visions that we have for the work that we want to do. And I think the increased emphasis on that is an exciting and important new trend. So how do you evaluate that? How do you evaluate those leaders? How do you evaluate the people in the executive director positions, the more interpersonal stuff? How do you know that someone's really awesome? (laughs) You know, they're going to take your money and make it something great. Or is it, you know, always small increments. And then as you get to grow that relationship, you know, increase funding or something like that. Numbers are so much easier, right? We got this many people and this is the program and it did X, Y, or Z, but to evaluate the people behind it, that's a little more difficult. Yeah, I so appreciate your asking that question. And I have a couple of reactions. One, you know, the first thing we always do is we look out in the literature because we aren't the first people who've thought of, well, you know, how do you assess if someone's a good leader? How do you assess if someone's a good educator? How do you assess that a program that trains leaders is good at what it does or a program that trains educators is good at what it does? And I would say to our disappointment, 
there is less information out there to answer those questions than we might have liked. And that's actually pushed us into a stance of, you know, making a substantial investment in asking those questions and conducting the research about what are the essential skills that you need to be a great leader, a great educator in our sector, in the different kinds of settings in which we fund. And like, that's a piece of work that we are doing and that will help us refine our work moving forward. And, you know- So you're like trying to take it from an objective opinion about somebody to more, not scientific, but a less objective way of kind of not checking boxes, but having some kind of research and basis behind those opinions. And "Ah, I really like the guy. He seemed really awesome. Or, you know, those kind of more objective ways that we might evaluate leaders. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's a question of both what are the behaviors that that person brings to the table? What are the, you know, skills that they have? You know, what are the impressions of the people who employ them? What are the impressions of the people who they are serving? So there are many ways to kind of triangulate to get that information. And we've, you know, in the meantime, we've made considerable investments in evaluations that have taught us a lot about our grantees and the work that they're doing. And, you know, I'm proud that a lot of those have produced really great results. And I'm also appreciative that, you know, we've had evaluations that point out changes that need to be made and that, you know, I think our best grantees know to have pivot and make those adjustments. Mm-hmm. Let's kind of look into the future a little bit. As my listeners will know, we received some surprise funding from you guys as a podcast. And in our conversation, you had mentioned that this was an area you had funded a few different podcasts is just trying to kind of see what this arena looks like and what is this area. And so I'd love to hear just a little bit for a moment, you know, what brought you into thinking about podcasts or thinking about those that are out there and what are some kind of initiatives or new things in the future that you've got your eye on? people are learning in really different ways today. And, you know, I myself listen to a lot of podcasts. I used to spend my dishwashing time and my exercise time listening to uh, music or whatever else. And today, you know, I can wash the dishes and catch up on high holiday sermons that were given over, you know, the week or I can, you know, have amazing insights into my ears. And that elevates an experience that was otherwise mundane time and turn it into sacred time. And podcasts aren't the only manifestation of that. You know, we see it in online community that's forming. We see it in interactive apps that have developed. We see it in blogs. We see it in all kinds of technology that's being used in classrooms and other settings. So that's just, I think, one of many examples of if we put our heads together and think about the new ways in which people are taking in information, Mm -hmm. building community, what an opportunity to think creatively, perhaps with those innovators who've done that work in the secular world, how can we bring, you know, some of those best ideas into the Jewish world? How can we have the Jewish world actually leapfrog forward in a conversation about what it means to engage with culture, uh, wisdom, religion in the 21st century? So certainly to do that work requires us to act and behave in different ways. You know, the kind of people who have the next big you know, technology idea aren't accustomed to writing 12-page written proposals to (laughs) foundations. It's a process. We're asking ourselves, you know, how do we fund differently? How do we behave differently? How do we surround ourselves with a different kind of people and thinkers to ensure that we can do the kind of investing that our sector, I think, deserves and needs? And I think this is just, you know, one piece of that bigger story. So you're such a, as I mentioned, a unique vantage point of seeing all these ideas, seeing all these programs, doing all this research. And I feel like I would feel like in that position, my hands tied a little bit. Like if you saw outside of the Jewish world, some really awesome idea or some really great thing that somebody's doing, but you're not in an organization that does stuff, right? Necessarily. Do you ever go to organizations or partners of yours and say, hey, we just heard about this really cool thing that's happening in the Christian community or in the secular community. We love to see a way that we can kind of bring this to the Jewish community because it's so amazing. Has that ever been something that, that the foundation has done? You know, we certainly are constantly trying to pay attention to what's happening outside the Jewish world. And we're in such a great position to do that, given our role as a funder and given the networks that we can be a part of with other funders who don't just work in the Jewish world. And I want to say that part of our role, I think, is absolutely in conversation with our grantee partners to point out what we're seeing, to share literature Mm -hmm. and research. What I want to just mention that we're always very cautious of is that 
you know, our grantee partners are absolutely the experts in the work right. that way they do. And, you know, it's not helpful to have your funder come out with a half day <laughs> and say, you know, you have to do this or if you did right. it, you fund it because it creates a situation where, you know, optimal solutions don't get created. This is a foundation that I work at. I'm proud of this that has not gotten into what we call operating, where we right. say this idea is so important that we're just going to set aside a big portion of our resources and hire staff and just do, do it. it. Our competency is around how do we identify the right partners and work with them. I think increasingly we'll have opportunities to identify problems that we think need to be solved and then put them out there into the world and try to find the right creative people who can help bring those ideas into reality. But I think we're always going to want to ground that with the folks who do the work and not try to put the funder in the driver's seat on right. running programs, which just we know is not what we're best at. Wonderful. Well, let's bring it back to you for a little bit. You've been with the foundation for 10 years now. Do you miss the implementation side of work that you used to do? Is there more growth in future within the foundation for you? Not saying that you have to declare anything now, but if your own personal journey, where are you at? I really appreciate the question. And I mean, the short answer is, of course, right? Like it was so amazing to have my day-to-day work be engaging directly with you know young people about how they can find lives of connection and meaning and purpose. Right. And to have just the pleasure of being kind of immersed in and in the center of vibrant, wonderful community and have that be my day job. And I also really appreciate that the work that I do today has me a step removed from that so that I can continue to be in community in wonderful ways, but to do that on my own time and with my family and with my friends. And at this stage of life, I've got, you know, two younger kids, you know, ages six and nine. And to be able to be home, you know, literally for every holiday and every Shabbat and Mm -hmm. to be, you know, a Jewish citizen of the world when I, you know, leave the office in my own community, I really treasure and I really value. And I found that a lot of the enjoyment that I used to get from doing that in my day job, I'm now able to do that in my personal life and in some of the volunteering that I do. And I would also say that I've come to appreciate that this work also provides incredible opportunity to build relationship, to build coalitions, to do some of the work that I was doing kind of on the front lines of Jewish life, a little bit more behind the scenes with the community of folks who run the organizations that we support and the community of folks with whom we partner. And I've been able to continue to you know, get that pleasure and enjoyment in a different kind of way. You know, and you also asked sort of, you know, I've, I've been in this role for 10 years. That's a first for me and certainly maybe less common than it used to be in the working world in general. I've been really lucky that this role has been able to grow and evolve with me. You know, I said I started out as a program officer, which is kind of an entry-level role here at the foundation. And over time, as I was able to learn about grant making, which I'd never known about from this mm-hmm. side of the work, I've been able to take on different kinds of responsibilities. And now where I sit as chief program officer, thinking really about, you know, the strategy of the foundation overall and thinking about how do I support and manage my team and how do I go out into the world and represent the work that we're doing and how do I keep learning about what's changing. And as long as I feel like I continue to add value in this context, I'm going to stay right where I am and enjoy, you know, your work-life balance, the balance and the rich learning and the feeling that I'm, you know, making the difference that I want to make. Wonderful. So we'll turn to your projections on all those other professionals out there. What's some advice that you'd give us, whether, you know, people working in Jewish community or less traditional educational type work, those who apply for your funding, who get your funding, who don't get your funding, but know who you are. Yeah, just people in the field doing the work. What's some advice you might have for them? I really appreciate this question. And, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot and I'll just be, I think, very kind of personal about this is that for my own kind of growth and journey, the most important insights I think I've gotten have to do with, you know, how I can continue to be the best professional that I want to be. And that in the end, that always comes back to knowing myself, knowing my own strengths, knowing where my blind spots are, and how do I lean into my strengths? And how do I recognize what are my trigger points? What are my, you know, limitations? Not because I'm going to be able to solve those, but because I'm going to be able to manage those to be, Mm. you know, the best employee, the best manager and bring the most value, not just to my day job, but also to the life that I'm trying to lead. 
And for me, that's come through some, you know, professional development that I've been able to do that's been more on the personal side, whether that's, you know, coaching or being a part of a cohort experience. It's not just about how do we learn some skills, but that's really about how do we reflect of, you know, who we are and how we bring our full selves to our work every day. And it makes me think of that great story about Reb Zusia, who, you know, spent his early years trying to change the world, and then he just tried to change his community, and then he thought maybe he could change his family and ultimately realized that, you know, it was enough work just to try to change himself. For anyone out there who's trying to figure out what's standing in the way of them, you know, making that next step to consider the possibility that us doing a little work on our own selves will probably help us overcome whatever that barrier is that we perceive that, you know, is us limiting ourselves as much as the world may be limiting us around us. So I encourage people to try to go find the growth, go find the mentors that can help them do that work. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, It's very important, but that is definitely tough to find those opportunities that really speak to that. I think it's a lot easier to find the opportunities that help you learn how to call a donor or, you know, manage your budget better than to categorize your values and get feedback to know, you know, how to kind of make some adjustments in your perspective about yourself. That's really hard work. Yeah, I agree. I would say it's tough both to find the right settings in which to do that. And I hope that some of the work the Jim Joseph Foundation is going to do around investing in talent will provide more settings for that. That's great. And I would also say once you get into that setting, it's not easy to do that work. We have to, you know, face our demons and be willing to admit that we make mistakes all the time and Mm. that we have the opportunity to do better, which again, I think is a very Jewish value. And we've got a wonderful rituals around, you know, tshuva in Mm. all of its forms, but that doesn't make it easy. Yeah. I've talked to the previous guests about the Jewish part of all this, right? The Not even just for organizations, but for ourselves and the importance of this constant learning and reflection and understanding our values and why we work for a Jewish organization and what that means and us as Jewish professionals and as Jewish people and being able to find those resources, whether it be a Musar class or you know, something at a synagogue or you know, outside of that, something online, different kind of learnings that kind of allow you to tap into that on a more regular basis. I would say it's, I actually think a really interesting opportunity for the Jewish community and those who are trying to support educators and leaders and others who work in our sector, people are looking for this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's so much new literature now around the science of happiness and around, you know, how do we help ourselves be the whole people we want to be. This is something that's only becoming more important, I think, to a next generation. And we've got a great opportunity in the Jewish community to look into our incredibly rich pool of wisdom around this and bring that to bear. And I think it has a lot to offer those who work in the Jewish community and anyone who works in any setting on, you know, how to lead that life that they want to lead. So in addition to being so informed about yourself and your strengths and how you are as a professional, how about your personal life? How do you kind of, you mentioned that you have two kids and I don't know if you live close to your office or not. What are some tactics that you use or some ways that you keep that work-life balance and keep everything together and get it all done? So I very much appreciate that question too. And it's something, you know, I think many of us who work for causes that we are passionate about struggle with. And I'd say the first thing you said you know, how do you get everything done? And the answer is not to get everything done, but to be really smart about prioritizing what matters most because, you know, the everything is very infinite. Um, Two things that I do that I thought would be worth mentioning, and both of them, I think, really tie back to stuff I learned in my Jewish upbringing. One is I always take time once a year, you know, around the high holiday season to get myself out and away from work and community and family to just be as reflective as I can about the year that I've had and the year that I'm going to have and to set goals for myself about what's going to be important, what I want to prioritize. And I actually, you know, jot down notes about that and, you know, find the time to sit down and, you know, make a little goals list for myself that I hang up over my desk and that I keep handy and not just to look at it and be like, oh, I should be working on that, but Mm. to actually you know, calendar out in my year, you know, I said to myself, you know, I want to get away with the family, you know, twice this year, when is that going to happen? And to block out that time, or, you know, I'm going to spend more time with certain friends or more time, you know, working on my health or learning about this or whatever it may be. And to commit myself to those things and then hold myself accountable on a regular basis. And, you know, once again, at the end of the year, and that's really been helpful for me because it allows me to 
know what's going to be most important in the year and then to mm. build the rest of the chaos around it. Right. And if I can get ahead of it, right, and book it in advance, then it's much more likely to happen. And as long as I consider those commitments sacred, I can usually get to it. And that feels great. And then the other thing that I do is, I think like many of us, I'm a diligent you know, to-do list keeper. I started using like an app for this that I can access from like absolutely everywhere. And if there's something I know I need to do, I'll get it in there. And then, you know, it's kind of a daily ritual to go through and figure out, you know, what is the most important thing that needs to happen and to move that or those things to the top of the list. And that helps me juggle quite a bit. And, you know, as just important as, you know, the work to do's or, you know, my volunteer commitments are, you know, the family commitments that I've made and I carve that out and make it sacred and I don't compromise on those. Right. Uh, and, you know, I'd be lying to say if I feel like I get it all right, but I feel like you're it getting does. something right. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it does help me and it helps me both carve out the time that I want to do what matters to me personally, but I also, I love my work. So sometimes, you know, late at night, I'll dig in on a work project that needs to happen that I'm excited about doing. And right. I don't apologize for that because I care about it. And I try not to feel, you know, to use the Passover language, enslaved by it, but rather, right. you know, liberated to be doing work that I care about that I feel can make a difference. I think that's all we ever really could ask for, right? And then the work that we're doing, sometimes it takes a few different positions to get there. But I think a lot of people who, you know, work in this community who dedicate their lives to really others, and, you know, that's the work that we do in the Jewish community, want to find a place where we love what we do, where we can be there for 10 years and grow in the ranks and grow in the organization. And sometimes it just takes a little while to find. So it's wonderful that that's something you found. Yeah, amen to that. And, you know, something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, particularly related to this, you know, I mentioned earlier that we have this new frame of how Jewish learning can help lead to a life of connection, meaning, and purpose. And it's helped me really develop a deep sense of gratitude for, you know, the work that I've had the fortune of doing in the Jewish community and how much that is a huge source of mm -hmm. how I find connection, you know, with my colleagues and the people in kind of our orbit, how I find meaning and that I know that, you know, I'm doing work that matters to me, that aligns with my values and purpose, that I can, you know, put that into action on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, not everybody can say that about their day job, right? right? And, you know, certainly the Jewish community is not the only place where you can find it. And the nonprofit sector is not the only place where you can find it. But to be able to have that is a privilege. And it's something, you know, I'm truly grateful for. And, I try to remind myself that on a regular basis, particularly on right. days when I'm feeling less grateful about it because it's feeling overwhelming or stressful. It's a privilege for those of us who get to who get to find that. Yeah, my organization does North American conference once a year, and the as you can imagine, the months leading up to it are you know a lot of work. And I think a week before our last conference, I got a call from a woman, and I was just talking with her, and I'm like, "Great, well, I'll see you in a week." And she's like, "You know, I am just so excited to like." refresh and get rejuvenated and reconnect with people. And like, I'm really looking forward to this. this is going to be so great. And I'm like, Oh man, I'm like, <laughs> I needed that. Right. Like, Oh, this, it's all worth it. It's fine. I'll be here till 10 at night. I don't care. Like sometimes right. when you can remember what it is and why it is that you're working so late on a particular project or really understanding the connection and importance of the work that you're doing in other people's lives and eventually in your own life. But sometimes having those reminders is very important. Yeah, I agree 100%. Well, thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciate your time and coming on the program and sharing your experiences and some information about the foundation. It's been really great. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Be well and Shabbat Shalom to you. Shabbat Shalom. It is clear to me from our conversation that for Josh, it's all about relationships. The philosophy that guides his work is that the greatest impact an institution can have as a funder is to create deep, prolonged and involved partnerships with the organizations who receive their funding. This is a bit different than the traditional institution-to-institution -institution funding relationships. Federations and other organizations have traditionally given block operation grants to their partner organizations on an annual basis. No questions asked, no reporting or metrics required. That model is no longer sustainable. When the donors who supply the funds to make those grants possible want to see the impact their dollars are making. They hold you accountable, which means you are responsible to hold your grantees accountable. Last year, I talked with Laura Fish from Federation CJA in Montreal, 
who describes her process in coming into the institution and bringing to light that this type of traditional giving needs to be updated. And then, in order to stay relevant to their donors, they needed to change how they went about granting those dollars. It is without a doubt that this way of operating has been very successful for the Jim Joseph Foundation, and their impact has been exponential in supporting not only Jewish education, but interesting new and engaging programs and projects within and between some of our most valued institutions. The decision to provide some funding to Jewish-based podcasts is a prime example of how they are always looking to have their finger on the pulse of Jewish life and fuel the endeavors that make it so vibrant and exciting. Within that excitement, I have a wonderful announcement to make today. This podcast has reached 10,000 downloads. I want to thank all of our listeners and our guests and supporters for making this project possible. It is hard to say exactly how many individuals we've reached, but I am more than thrilled to have been able to broadcast so many voices of our leadership to those who are choosing to dedicate at least part of their life to creating community for others. So thank you for allowing me to do this work and bringing this project to such a wonderful milestone. And as I've mentioned before, this project is also made possible by a small grant from the Jim Joseph Foundation. So thank you, Jim Joseph, for allowing me to do this work and recognizing what it's bringing to the community. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, how to start your own podcast, and more on our website, it's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. 